Hey, seasoned athletes. I'm Robin Leggett, and this is episode 54 of the Seasoned Athlete Podcast. Seasoned Athlete is your home for inspiring stories and motivational advice from competitive athletes representing a wide variety of sports who all share one common bond. They are all over 40 years old. We're here to prove one story at a time that age does not have to prevent you from achieving your bold athletic and fitness goals. To learn more about this podcast and see show notes from this or any episode, visit seasonedathlete.me. And if you like what you hear, I would love it if you'd subscribe, share with your friends, and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Today's guest is women's running pioneer Anne Audain. Anne was born with severe bone deformities in both of her feet and wasn't able to walk correctly until she had reconstructive surgery at age 13. This surgery would change her life, give her wings, as she says, and lead her to a storied running career. Let's get to know a woman known as a champion, a Hall of Famer, a pioneer, and a record holder. This is Anne Audain. Hi, Anne. Hello there. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm so excited to talk to you. Are you ready to drop some seasoned athlete knowledge on our listeners today? I'll do my very best for you. Wonderful. You are Anne Audain. You were born in New Zealand and suffered through your younger years with bone deformities in both of your feet. After successful reconstructive bone surgery at age 13, you joined a local athletic club, and that set you on the path to become a pioneer for women's professional running. Throughout your career, you have qualified for the Olympic Games six times, set world records, been honored by Queen Elizabeth II, and you have been inducted into the Running USA Hall of Fame, the New Zealand Sports Hall of Fame, and the RRCA Distance Running Hall of Fame. That's a lot of halls of fame. Your incredible story can be seen in a documentary titled Running Her Way, available now at anaudain.com. In the meantime, is there anything vital personally, professionally, or from your athletic life that you'd like to take a quick moment to fill in? No, I think people will certainly see that it's been a, a long um, career uh, that nobody ever, ever, ever would have thought was going to happen considering my younger years. And uh, the older I get, the more I realize that that was really quite something that, that, to be honest, what those doctors did for me as a teenager, they truly gave me a pair of feet to, they, well, they pretty much gave me a set of wings is what they did. That's what it sounds like. And I, I'm excited to get into, into that in depth. Uh, before we get to that, though, I'm going to ask the big question that I ask all my guests, and that is, what is your age at this moment in time? I am 63 years young. I love it. Years young. That is a good emphasis right there. All right. Let's start from the beginning. Uh, I usually ask when you started playing sports and what your early athletic life looked like, but it sounds like we need to start a little bit before that, huh? So let's get into what happened with, you know, the bone, bone deformities and how the surgery changed your life. Well, when I, uh, I was actually adopted at birth and when I started to walk, my parents noticed that I just wasn't using my feet correctly, but really didn't kind of know anything that was happening. I mean, they just um, kind of watched what was going on. And what was happening was that I wasn't going up on the front part of my feet. I was shuffling along more on my heels and I just didn't have the heel toe motion of, of walking. And as I grew these kind of bone, huge bone growths on both kind of like enormous bunions on a small kid's foot started to grow. And um, they 
just caused me a lot of pain to go up on my toes, which, you know, I started to obviously explain to my parents as I started to talk. Um, But anyway, it prevented me from wearing normal shoes. And the doctors in New Zealand, um, who were absolutely amazing, but I always joked that they put me through a whole bunch of hell as a young kid because they didn't want to do surgery until I was a teenager and my bones were strong enough um, to heal and that the outcome would be positive. So it prevented me from doing any sports as a young kid, uh, a lot of pain and not being able to wear uh, normal shoes. Fortunately, fortunately, where I was in, in New Zealand, in the major city of Auckland, um, the climate is relatively mild, so I could go barefoot um, as much as I wanted to. And in the wintertime, my father would just get uh, kind of, I used to say they were old lady slippers, but he would cut holes in the side so that the bone spurs would stick out. So wow. that's how I, that's how I spent my childhood. And at age 13, they decided it was time to do the surgery. And um, to this day, and I know I sent you a picture, which is the only picture that I allowed my parents to take of me. It's my first day of high school in my lovely school Catholic uniform. And uh, But what they did was um, they shaved off all the extra bone and they um, transplanted some tendons. uh, And I'm in plaster casts. And their whole idea was to force me to have the heel-toe motion of walking. So instead of letting me leave the hospital uh, in crutches or in a wheelchair, they created these black leather boots. And, you know, these days you see people walking along on these big boots that they've got that have got a rocker on them when they've got injuries to their feet or ankles. Well, I swear I think I'm the first one to have had those because they got these black leather boots and on the bottom of them they put a wooden rocker like on a rocking horse. And I walked out of that hospital on those feet that had just been had a major surgery on them. I had 64 stitches in each foot underneath those plaster casts. And uh, it caused me more pain for a long time. But I swear to this day, those doctors were genius because they I'm not sure I would have had the confidence to get up on my toes. Uh, it might have taken a lot longer. They forced me up on my toes immediately. Um, I imagine that, you know, when it came when when running came into your life later, it's like the toughness that you developed walking so quickly after your surgery probably, you know, played into being as successful as you were. Uh, Yes, I I think what I learned, um, I had a very healthy career. And I think what I learned through um, going through that and then the rehab, I learned at a young age the difference between good pain and bad pain. Mm-hmm. So that when you're working really hard as a as a elite athlete um, or any athlete, to be honest, you're out there and you're doing your workouts and to be able to tell the difference between a muscle hurting because you're working hard versus a muscle hurting because you're going too hard and you're hurting it, um, you're doing damage. I think I learned that very quickly so that I was never scared to back off. Um, I knew the difference between good pain and bad pain. So you had the surgery. How long was it until you started kind of pursuing anything athletic or physical? Well, New Zealand's system is very much club-oriented. It's not a school system of sport. And so my local community had a track club called the Odahu Athletic Club. And so all my neighbor, neighbors' kids were all involved in the, in the club and kids at school would, were involved with the club. So I really just wanted to kind of join somewhere where I could be like everybody else. So I joined the the athletic club. 
And as I said, it was track and field and it was always held. Club night was a Wednesday night and the club atmosphere included five-year-olds to 95-year-olds. So it was very, very much a family-oriented organization. And so when I joined, we were all encouraged as, as kids to to try and learn every aspect of track and field. So you got taught the shot put and the long jump and high jump. And, and I was pretty useless at those, but I found that, you know, I liked the sprints and we were only allowed to run 100 and 200 meters. So it wasn't like we were running long distance, but I just found I loved it. And I joined a, a year after having the surgery. So you were 14 at the time? 14. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And then, uh, how did that lead? So you enjoyed running. You talked about, you enjoyed the sprints. Um, how did that, how did that progress over the years to you becoming more of an elite runner, a high level runner? Well, I started with that. That was the summer season in New Zealand. And then we go automatically into cross country. And so when I got to cross country, the my age group of girls were allowed to run a mile and a half. And when it got to that distance, I realized that that's what I loved. I mean, I was quite fast too, but on, on the sprints. But when it got to cross country, that's when I found my niche. And at age 15, because there are no rules governing age groups and in the club system, whereas in the school system here, there are so many rules stopping kids from doing things, Um, I was encouraged to go and run in the senior 800 meters race at the Auckland championships the following summer. So that's just one year after being, you know, joining the club. And I finished third in the senior 800 meter race. And that's where um, my uh, first coach saw me run and just saw talent. And in fact, I have a headline where it says that, I'm, you know, I'm 14 years old and it says girl runner could turn out to be great. <laughs> and, that, and that was just after running an 800 meters against senior women. So I, you know, the, the, the women weren't allowed to run any further than that on the track, 800 meters at that point, which is 1970, 71, 800 meters was the longest distance in the Olympic games for women. Yeah. So you only got to run a little bit further on cross country. Right. It, it still fascinates me. So I, I interviewed Catherine Switzer for the podcast. I'm sure you're familiar with her and her story. Yes. Maybe maybe you've met. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, she she's known for being the first woman to run the Boston Marathon. I think it was 1967, um, I think, late 60s. Yeah. Um, and it just astounds me when I talked to her. It blew my mind just like how recent it was that women were not allowed to run. Uh, that w- women were not allowed to run distance. I mean, you're talking about the early 70s that 800 meters was it for women in the, in the Olympic Games. So it just fascinates me that this is within, you know, the last 50 years that that it was unheard of for women to run distance. Can you talk at all about your experience in that and how you, how you push the boundaries? Well, it, the... 1972 Olympics was the first Olympics where they added the 1500 meters. And my coach basically just thought that the longer the distance, the better I would be. And I qualified for Munich in 72, but I was only 16 years old. And because New Zealand is a small country, can't afford to send a a gigantic team. 
They did choose me, but with about three weeks to go, they chose to pull me out because they considered me too young. It would be the first time that a, a, a woman had gone and distance. They just weren't ready for it. And you can be d- disappointed that you don't get to go to the Olympic Games, but for anyone old enough, um, you realize what the tragedy of the 72 Olympic Games was, was yeah. um, the, the terrorists getting into the village and the massacre of the Israeli athletes. So I don't think I would have wanted to experience that at 16 years of age. Probably never would have left home again. Right, right. That definitely so could that have changed the trajectory some... of your life, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, my parents wouldn't let me leave home again. Um, <laughs> so I continued to um, run cross-country, and it was actually cross-country in terms of going to the world level where I succeeded first. And so my first New Zealand cross-country team was in 1973, uh, to Belgium, and I was only 17 years old. And this is long before they had the junior world cross country, which is 20 and under. So I went to Europe at the age of 17, the youngest in the New Zealand team by far, and I finished ninth in the world cross country. And so then New Zealand only went every other year, also because of expense and also because uh, we had to travel so far and we were coming out of opposite seasons. So anytime we went to Europe to run cross country, we were coming out of a New Zealand summer. So because of the travel and having to acclimate, uh, we would go for about four to six weeks to Europe to try and get ready. So this was a big undertaking. And, you know, I'm going to teachers college and I'm having to take time off. But I went every other year. I went in 70. Uh, 3, 75, 77, 79, and 81 to the World Cross Country, and I finished ninth three times um, during that time. So cross country on the world level was more successful than track was, obviously because the distance was longer, Um, whereas on the track, I went to the Olympic Games in 76 to Montreal and ran the 800 and 1500 metres and didn't even get past the first round. And then Moscow was also only going to be 800 and 1500 meters. And then there was the boycott. So as far as track was concerned, I was stuck. Um, But cross country kind of kept me going because it was a whole bunch of great travel around the world because of it. Yeah. And and distance seemed to play into your skill set. Yes. So let's flash ahead. Again, I'm going to bring up Catherine Switzer uh, because she was known for being the first woman to run the Boston Marathon and her story became famous because race officials notoriously tried to physically remove her from the race because at that time women were not allowed to run these types of races. So you are credited as the pioneer for women's professional running, Um, but that also did not come without controversy. Can you tell us a story behind that? Well, I'll backtrack a little to 1980 because a lot of things happened in my life. I broke up with my first coach and I actually quit running. And a lot of it was because um, with the boycott in Moscow and just feeling like there weren't any opportunities, I actually quit the sport. And if it wasn't for the encouragement of some folks, I would not have joined my second coach, whose name is John Davies. And he was um, a Lydiard coached athlete. Um, in the era of Peter Snell, who was our famous Olympic gold medalist and and world record holder in the mile. And John himself was a bronze medalist in the Olympic Games um, behind Snell in Tokyo in 64. And so John had the principles of the Lydiard philosophy, whereas my first coach really never had a plan in terms of training at all. So I was encouraged to enjoy, uh, to, to join him. And I was really out of shape, but 
he got me ready to be able to make that last cross-country team that I made for New Zealand, which was 1981. And that took me to Madrid, Spain. And at that point, some of our famous New Zealand mail runners were already in the United States running on the roads, uh, running some of the new road races that had begun um, in the late 70s after Frank Shorter's success uh, in the Olympic Games. The running revolution kind of started here in the United States, and so the road racing started. And so my two fellow Kiwis, um, Rod Dixon and Dick Quacks, were already here in the United States. Um, Dick had a small job with a very new company called Nike. Uh, And uh, (laughs) so while I was in Madrid, Rod said to me, Annie, if you don't have to go home to New Zealand, I think you should go to the States. I think the road racing is just made for you. And he'd been my teammate in all those cross-country teams, and I'd been out training with them. I'd traveled in Europe with the guys. They knew what I was capable of. And so when he said, you know, the roads are made for you, you've you've got to try. So I actually didn't go back to New Zealand. I um, came to the United States instead. And um, Dick got me into a race in the Crescent City Classic in New Orleans, a 10K race, which still exists and is huge. Um, and... I went there and I'd never, obviously I'd run, certainly run 10K in training, but I had never raced any further than those cross-country races that that I had been running, um, which were now up to two miles. So I line up in this 10K. I have no idea what I'm doing. I've never seen so many people assembled in a road race ever. And uh, I finished third behind um, Joan Benoit Samuelson and Patty Catalano, who were the top American women at that point. And in fact, Patty set an American record in the 10K, I think of about 32, 38. And I ran 33 minutes and 11 seconds for the first 10K of my life. And people were just astounded. Um, And once again, people were going, man, you know, that's the first time you've ever run a 10K and that's how fast and you're right behind our top girls. And it was Jeff Galloway, um, who and his wife, who at that point invited me to ride the train back to Atlanta, Georgia, to their house um, and stay for a couple of weeks. And while I stayed there, they filled me in on what was happening on the American road racing scene. And there was the rumors that this race was going to take place in Portland, Oregon in June, where Nike was going to put up the prize money and try and encourage the athletes to break their amateur status. Now, remembering I'm only 25 years old in a country I've never been in before, and after being at Jeff's place, I went to Eugene, Oregon, and stayed um, with the folks, some of the folks there, and, of course, that was um, Athletics West Track Club and Mary Decker Slaney and Ron Tab and, and, you know, all the folks of Athletics West. And Athletics West was a club started by Nike um, to try and help support the athletes, but they couldn't give them any money because they were amateur. So Nike was already trying to do something in the sport, but the amateur rules were that you took took a dollar, anything, any money uh, in the sport, you were banned for life. That was the law. And so that was the rules, the international rules, not just the American rules. That was the international rules in our sport, totally amateur sport. So I started running the road races and uh, I'd get a few 
hundred bucks here and there under the table, um, just like the whole European track season was in those days, um, except the women got nothing. But, you know, all my fellow Kiwi men, uh, when I traveled with them in Europe, I mean, they earned thousands under the table. So I was all in in terms of taking the chance. But, you know, I, once again, I'm 25 years old in a foreign country um, trying to make ends meet. So the folks were just tremendous. And as I said, I got enough money just handed under the table to run some races to allow me to um, kind of stay with people in their homes and give a bit of money for food. And, and people were absolutely wonderful. So fast forward to June of, of um, 81, and I really was finding my niche. Uh, I won Bloomsday. Oh, gosh, go back. I, I won some big races heading into that Cascade runoff in Portland, Oregon in June. And so I was really starting to find my niche. And I was running out of money, though. And I uh, went there thinking, well, if I finish fifth or sixth, I'll earn enough money to stay in the United States a little bit longer. And I turned up in Portland, Oregon, and the who's who of the sport is there. The night before, we're in a hotel room, and there's all these people telling us that, do we understand the consequences? Will we sign the forms? Do we know that if we accept money the next day, we're going to be receiving bans? And, and so, you know, I was like, okay, this is my chance. I'll go for it. I mean, if it didn't work out, I just head home back to New Zealand and go back to school teaching. So I really didn't have anything to lose. And I thought I'm just going to take the chance to earn some money out of my talent. And the next day I went out and actually won the race <laughs> and crossed the finish line and won $10,000 and accepted the money and got an immediate lifetime ban from the sport. And because I was only in the United States on a visitor's visa, that was illegal to have accepted that money too. <laughs> oh, no. So my parents are just like, you have really messed things up and kind of get on a plane and get back home. But there was just such tremendous support. Um, from the running community here in the States, from race directors, the New Zealand media. Um, it, I never felt, I never regretted it for a moment. I just knew that obviously I was in a lot of trouble and things were going to have to get worked out. But the American race directors ignored the ban and for, for the rest of 1981 I continued to run and win and receive prize money. So by the end of 1981, I did have to leave. I practically got deported and told to go back to New Zealand and go to the American embassy and not come back to the United States until I had an appropriate visa to be able to earn money through running. Hmm. So I went back, and, and uh, but I had $22,000 to bargain with by then. <laughs> and, <yeah>. Money <laughs> talks, right? <laughs> and so it was like, okay, then got to go back, got to – but. It was, it was a tough time. And when I went back to New Zealand, in fact, the New Zealand Athletic um, Federation was tougher than the American. Um, they didn't even want me to step on a running track there. Uh, they, they were really bad. So it was wow. actually tougher going back to New Zealand to deal with them, to go to the embassy, to work out the immigration status. Um, that was a, a pretty tough summer down there. Yeah, I, was, well, I was wondering how difficult it is to to get a visa for a professional visa when 
the, the, the way you're earning money is through racing. That's that's a unique occupation. Well, they had to set up a special visa. I believe I would have been the first one to get it. Um, it was pioneering about, everywhere. <laughs> yeah, they, they talk about this H-1B visa now, and that's what they worked out, that I could come to the United States and I was only allowed to earn money through my talent in running. I couldn't get any other job. That's fascinating to me. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, yeah, I did get to, but, but that's what they worked out that yes, you can have a visa, but you can't earn money in any other way. You are only allowed to run for it. Yeah. So you just had to run like heck all the time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just run every race that has any sort of prize money whatsoever. Yep. <laughs> and then, uh, the lifetime ban on, in your bio on your website, it's in air quotes and it says temporary. So, uh, how was, how and when was that reversed? So, it was June of 81 it happened, and when I went back to New Zealand, New Zealand would not let me run the whole time I was down there. But my coach at that point said, you know, you've got to have a reason to be training hard. Let's attempt the world 5,000-meter record in March of 82. And I said, well, that's not going to work because they're not going to let me run. He says, that doesn't mean they, you, you don't have to be in a track meet. We just have to set it up that we have three officials and others in the, in the race, and that'll be, that'll be quite enough. So I actually broke the world 5,000 meter record on the track the first time I ever raced the distance on the track. And immediately they, they said it's not going to be ratified because you're a professional, you're a band athlete right now. And my coach said to me, Annie, the band's going to get lifted. They'll give it to you retroactively. I promise you, I bet that's what will happen. So I actually came back to the United States in March of 82 and continued racing on the roads and as a band athlete, but as I said, the American race directors completely ignored it. So I was free in the United States. I was just more of a band athlete in New Zealand. And that's when uh, my coach started to push me to go to the Commonwealth Games in Brisbane, Australia in October of 82. And I said, I can't do that, John. They're not going to allow me to run. I'm banned. And he kept saying to me, Annie, I, I'm working on it from this end. They swear they're going to lift the bands so that you can be in the team. And by this point, I did have a lot of status because I'm now getting a lot of attention in the United States. I'm a world record holder. They don't want me not in that team because no New Zealand woman had ever won a gold medal on the track. And so now was New Zealand's chance to have that. So they were working hard to make sure that the ban was lifted for me to get back to Australia um, in October. So I continued running the roads and I flew to Australia with, I think, about three weeks to go, still banned. And I'm down there and I'm saying to my coach, what on earth are we doing? I, I'm not, they're not going to, I've come all this way and they're not going to lift the ban. And he kept saying, Annie, Annie, they're going to just keep training, keep training and sure enough, with one week to go, they lifted the ban and gave me my world record plaque. <laughs> Just as your coach said. Just as he said. <laughs> it's very Fantastic. stressful. Now, you think about that I've gone all the way there with all this pressure that, you know, I could win a gold medal. And I've still got all this uncertainty. Yeah. So I kind of look back at that as that was pretty tough to get through that because I did win a gold medal. Yeah, there was a lot. There was a lot of, like you said, uncertainty. It sounds like there was a lot of like figuring out workarounds at the time and skirting the system until the system kind of caught up with you and with the time. Uh, but for that period, it sounds it sounded like it was a little intense. And thankfully, your coach kind of 
knew kind of could see ahead and could could see that things were going to change and did you know your coach did did his best to reassure you yes he kept he kept me positive he kept me training and and um and then I did you know I ended up becoming New Zealand's first female gold medalist on the track and I'm still New Zealand's only female gold medalist on the track oh wow that hasn't changed <laughs> hasn't changed no wow wow <laughs> well that's quite an honor then yeah <laughs> So let's take a look at the entirety of your racing career. Um, and I know that's a lot. So we're gonna, just going to touch on a couple of things. Uh, and these might be tough questions. I'm not sure. But we're going we're gonna to go for it. So can you take us back to what you would consider your worst race, your worst day, your worst competitive moment? What was, what was the, hardest, the hardest day on the course? Um, well, I actually was pretty successful. I, I won 75 United States road races out of 112 starts and I was in the top three 90% of the time. So that's pretty successful. That sure but, is. Um, I think the, the and I, people often say to me, what's the biggest regret or the biggest disappointment? And I would use the word frustration. And the frustration would be that in the 1984 Olympic Games in Los Angeles, they put the marathon in for women, but they did not put in the 5,000 and the 10,000 meters. And at that point, that's, you know, I'd had the world record in the 5,000 and I was number two in the world in the 10,000. So I only had one option is to go back to run track or to try the marathon. And so I really never wanted to be a marathoner. I knew that that was one thing in my mind was even though, you know, Nike put me on a treadmill and said I'd be a great marathoner. And I said, well, there's two problems with that. One, I don't want to run that far because of my feet. And two, I just, I don't like that. I don't like that distance. It doesn't suit my personality. I was far more competitive at the shorter distances. I would not have had the patience to be a good marathoner. But at that point, my only chance of going to Los Angeles was to run the marathon. So my first marathon, New Zealand had really strong um, uh, qualifications, they, they they always made it tougher, even though there's an international qualifying time to go to the Olympic Games, New Zealand always made it harder. And so I had to, I had to break two hours 35 um, in my first marathon to go to Los Angeles. And so I ran Chicago and just completely, you know, new to it, just naive, not really in good shape. But anyway, I was um, winning with about three miles to go in Chicago on 226 pace for my first marathon. And I just hit the wall like people do. And I ended up fourth. Um, but I ran two hours 32, which qualified me for Los Angeles. And so I thought that was it. But the New Zealand Federation, because now I had male administrators there who were now working against me, and a lot of it, I think, was because of the money and the envy. Um, so they said because I was inexperienced, I had to do another marathon to prove to them that I should go to Los Angeles. So in March of 84, they made me run the Los Angeles Marathon, the international marathon that's in Los Angeles in that month. They made me run another one, and I, I ran faster so they had no choice but to choose me for Los Angeles. But at that point, it was too close. Um, I'd run a marathon in March, and here they are trying to get me to turn around and do another one. And I ended up 
in the Los Angeles Marathon in hospital with dehydration. Um, just totally inexperienced, that was correct. But also really didn't have my heart in it either. So that's probably the frustration of my career is I really would have liked to have um, taken on Los Angeles in the 5,000 meters, definitely in 84. Yeah, it sounds like it was definitely a lot of hoops you had to jump through for an event you didn't want to do. But for but to be able to compete in this, you know, this Los Angeles Olympic Games, it's like you did what you had to do. Mm -hmm. But uh, it wasn't the preferred situation. And I just I, you know, every every time you talk about New Zealand, it's like, man, did they make it hard for you all the time? It sounded like. Yeah, it was. And, And they still do. There's still athletes down there that will say that the selection process um, is, is just not right. Um, yeah. all these years later, that's probably, yeah. why we, probably why we don't have any really good runners anymore. Why you still have that record, why you still yes. have the only <laughs> gold medal for women. Yes. Yeah. It's so interesting. So, okay. Well, we talked about that. Now we got to talk about, and you have a lot of accomplishments in the sport. Do you have a favorite race or what you consider your greatest accomplishment? Well, people ask me why I was so consistent. And I think it's because my coach and I always had a good plan. And we sat down every January and we worked out what the road racing plan was going to be for the year. And we never deviated from it, even though I I would get offered more money, appearance money to come to races. And I think that's what allowed for me to stay healthy and consistent. So I won two major races um, in the country seven times. Um, Bloomsday in Spokane and what is now the Cleveland Marathon in 10K. It was back in the 80s called the Revco 10K. And so I won them both seven times. Bloomsday, I finished third twice and Revco, I finished second twice. So Revco's got the best outcome. But that was no one's ever done that. No one's run apart from Greta White's winning the New York Marathon nine times, which is absolutely amazing. No one else has a record of winning these major road races seven times. So I was proud of my consistency. And but, you know, throughout I won Peachtree and Boulder Boulder. And so I can claim all the big ones um, in my resume and uh, and set course records in in a lot of them. And to this day, um, some of my times are still in the top three in these road races. That's a that's an amazing accomplishment. So it's not one race. It's it's the consistency of your career that that is that you consider your greatest accomplishment. Yes. Yeah, that's fantastic. So um, are you still running? Yes, I, I am. Still try to run daily. I've had um, a couple of bad years, all my own fault, and not actually through doing anything stupid except running on trails following my husband too close. <laughs> so I've actually ca- taken a couple of bad falls running on trails here in Indiana. And as I said, all my fault, running behind him too close and didn't see some roots. So the first fall, uh, which was like two and a half years ago, I guess, maybe, and anyway, resulted in me requiring knee surgery for a torn meniscus. So I had to go through that. So that's really the first serious running injury I'd had through my entire career. So it has to happen when I'm 60 years old. And what was really interesting is that the doctors here didn't really want to do it because they said, well, you know, we're not going to do it just because you want to run again. We just think it's a waste of time, which I thought was terrible, to be honest. And I finally said, well, I'm not your normal everyday runner. Right. Um, my legs are really strong and I have the experience to come back from this. 
And I did. And I got back and went, did everything right, did all the rehab, got back to running. And then uh, Labor Day of, uh, what is this, 19, Labor Day of 17, uh, 2017, I'm once again um, out running with my husband and I fall again. And this time, I think because I was trying to protect my knee, I just didn't fall like you're supposed to. And I smashed my right hand to pieces. And I, I jokingly say that my worst running injury in life is actually my hand. Right. Um, smashed my fingers, needed pins, um, surgery, uh, fortunately didn't break a shoulder, elbow or wrist, which absolutely amazed the doctors. And I said, well, that's because I work out with weights. Um, it was just the way that I fell. I crunched my hand up and my whole body weight went on my right hand. So that was awful. And they shut me down from running longer for my hand than they did for my knee. Um, and, and I can understand that because it was such a mess. They just didn't want me falling again. Yeah. Um, or do, and so, so that took me back. I had to learn, I jokingly say, I had to almost become a beginner runner because between the two of them, I lost my stride. I lost my power. Um, it's been quite an amazing ex- an experience, but um, I'm back at it, but I've had to work really, really hard um, to get back. Um, and, and so it's been quite an experience to do that. Isn't it fascinating how it really is use it or lose it? You are, you know, you have a history of being just a top elite runner for decades and you experience a couple injuries and it's like, you got to start over, you know, it, that the use it or lose, it really applies to everybody. It, it really does. And, and it's been a, I had to start walking at first, particularly with the knee is walk, run and, or, you know, just start walking and then do a little bit of running and one lamppost to another. And it was just like somebody starting off running for the first time in their life. An older person is, is that you just start off with baby steps. That's how I had to do it with the, um, with the knee, with the hands, it was a bit better because, um, you know, obviously the legs were okay. But um, it was, I lost, as I said, I lost my form. I had to just start doing things to try and get my form back because I, I was so weak because I hadn't done enough. You know, it, it, I just had to get stronger again. And, and uh, it's been quite an undertaking, to be honest. And I finally feel like I'm, I'm certainly don't run very fast at all. Um, but at least I'm out there. I'm still doing about four or five miles a day. And quite honestly, that's all I want to do too. I just love running. I don't want to get in a pool or on a bike. So I'm doing everything possible to just stay a runner. And you're still, I mean, four or five miles a day, that's still plenty of running, maybe not from, you know, what you used to do, but for the the average person, that's significantly more still. So, you know, it's great that you're getting out there and you're running because it's what you love. It's how you love mm-hmm. to exercise. Yeah, yep, it is. Uh, are you are you racing at all or planning to do any racing? Oh, no, I haven't raced for over 20 years. Oh, wow. No, not interested. Um, I um, I came out. I retired when I was 36. And the reason I retired was not because I wasn't in good health or I wasn't still winning. I was. The reason I retired is I found my mind wasn't in it anymore, that I'd had such a long career at this point, 22 years at the top. And and I found that my focus wasn't there anymore to do the racing or the training that was needed. I was becoming um, a little lazy. And so I retired at 36, um, winning the last race I ran. And uh, then four years went by 
1995, I turned 40 and became an American citizen. So I thought, you know, it'd be kind of fun. I was still in very good shape. Uh, be kind of fun to come out of retirement and run a few races and try and win a few United States championships on the roads as a new citizen. So I came out and I ran six um, U.S. road races in 1996, and three of them were United States championships, which I won. And I won all six, actually, and then I retired again. And that's really the last time I did anything serious with regards racing, and that's 1996. I love that you came out of you came out of retirement and still managed to win a bunch of races. Yeah. <laughs> so theoretically, it could happen. You could change your mind and probably still win a bunch of races. Oh no, I just don't. <laughs> I just don't care. I I just like being outdoors. Um, I don't like being. You know, these days I got spoiled. Right. I mean, I was so spoiled. You got to remember, you line up in races. You're out front. You're never in a crowd. And right. I hate That's crowds. True. And I prefer to run alone. And so I couldn't get in these races with all these people. It would drive me nuts. And so that sounds very uh, egotistical maybe, but I just got spoiled um, by being able to run out in front and clear of a whole bunch of people. It is really nice to have that. And it, uh, you know, you've never been in that back corral. Race. <laughs> no. I know that back corral really well. It is, uh, you know, I, I envy your position that you got to experience in every race. Yeah, I got, uh, I got spoiled. Don't get to do that. <laughs> so um you are still active you said you lift weights as well right yes I because of um I've always been actually very good with my upper body um I'm disciplined enough have it set up in my basement but with trying to come back for the lower body I thought I'm, I'm just not doing it right so I actually got a personal trainer twice a week to really work on you know the, the core and the legs um and that's really really helped um, so, so I just started that with a personal trainer just because of my knee and my hand. Um, I lost, I lost a lot of strength in my back, which I really need because I've got such an upright, powerful stride, uh, which I'm trying to get back, but I need my back to be really strong to handle that. And I lost so much in that time. Yeah. So let's talk about living an active life as someone in your sixties. So, um, aside from the injuries, which we've already talked about, uh, what kind of challenges do you find you face as as an older athlete? I would still, you know, you may not be competing, but you're still running four or five miles a day. You're training. Uh, what kind of challenges do you face and what kind of benefits do you experience uh, being being older, being a little bit older? I don't think that the challenges are, you know, just getting through these injuries was obviously a challenge. But now yeah. it's pretty much weather. I live in southern Indiana, so I can't stand the winter. That's a big challenge. Um, I still like to be outside, so I have taught myself to run in snow. Um, obviously, ice is, is a challenge, and at that point, I'll go walking at the mall. Um, <laughs> so I hate treadmills, so I don't want to get a treadmill. So I probably winter is the biggest challenge, but I still do it. I still get outside, and I wrap up, and as long as there's not ice um, and the weather's not too cold. I mean, we can have some pretty cold days here, but it's not as bad as northern Indiana and the Chicago area. Uh, yeah. So yeah. so there's that. Summertime, a lot of heat and humidity, but I really don't care. You know, get out early enough. Um, I'm motivated enough. I know how important it is to my health that the motivation is definitely there. I prefer to run alone. 
Um, I don't wear headphones. I think that's the craziest thing that people do, particularly women, for the safety issue. Um, but I like to just sense nature. So in that respect, um, that's what it's kind of like my meditation is to get out and do my running. And I really live in a very runner unfriendly town, but it's my husband's hometown. I've been here 22 years. I have to live with it. There are no decent parks to run. There are no trails. It's pitiful. And so I really have to challenge myself to stay motivated because I have no pretty places to run. And when my, when my frame of reference is New Zealand, Colorado, and Idaho, someone like me could not have ended up in a worse place for being a runner, for being a runner. So that's another challenge. Um, but otherwise I'm grateful to, to still be able to do it. And, um, so yeah, I, I stay pretty motivated. My husband is quite surprised that I, I do, that I like to run alone and then I get out and do it. But I really do understand the health benefits. I'm 63 years old and touch wood and fingers crossed and toes crossed and everything else crossed. I'm not on any medication. Yeah. And I've heard that story over and over again from the people I talk to for the show. A lot of the runners, too, is that, you know, they get into their 50s, 60s, 70s, even 80s, and they're not on medication. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just amazing the benefits that come from staying active in your senior years. It, it, it really is. I think what was so astounding to me when I had to go to the hospitals and go through all the therapy and everything, and you're just in there and you're just people watching and I'm watching people and I'm discovering that they're 10 and 15 years younger than me and, and having a hardest, hardest time going through surgeries, feet, ankles, knees, hips. And I'm going, Oh my Lord. I mean, it made me appreciate but then a lot of it, too, I look and I go, man, you people have not taken care of yourself. Yeah. So that was a that was a, a awakening as well as to how many people were so much younger than me and in such terrible shape. And not only did they need the surgeries because a lot of the times they're overweight, so the wear and tear on their knees and their hips, they're needing these replacements at such a young age, but they're not rehab, they, they can't come back from them because they don't have the health. Yeah. They don't have the health. They don't have the habits, no. um, the discipline that that like what you have because you yeah. spent your whole life running yeah. and training and being active and you wouldn't have it any other way. You don't know it any other way. Well, and there were people that went through, I guess, you know, these doctors when they're going to do certain surgeries, they do them all on the same day or the same two days. So then you end up going through the rehab with all the same people. And I heard there were some guys that going through rehab and they go, how come she had the same surgery as me and how come she's doing such and such? And I'd hear the therapist say, well, she knows what she's doing and she's got the discipline to do it. So I, you know, <laughs> was, yeah. that was quite an experience too. I'm sure. I'm sure. So let's talk about the documentary. It's called Running Her Way. Uh, tell me about the documentary, how that came about and uh, why people should watch it. Well, it came about because I did do an awful lot of speaking through the um, 80s and 90s and 2000s. And so I would tell my story. And it's such a big story that a lot of the times you're only really given 45 minutes to an hour anytime you speak. And I'd have people say, um, you really you need to write a book. So the book came first, um, co-authored with a co-author. And sadly, um, that co-author put it up on Amazon 
without my name. So he has made all the benefits of the book. So I really couldn't do anything about it. Um, and so I decided to try and um, raise the, some money to um, turn it into a, a documentary. Well, of course, that's going to cost a fortune. But a guy who was my first agent uh, in the in the 80s, um, he had he was doing some work with some X game athletes, and they had met a couple from Utah who were trying to get into um, the documentary arena. They'd had success with music videos, a young couple out of Utah. And he met them and he said to them, would you be interested in trying to do this story? Uh, and how much would you charge to do it? And we, you could use it as um, your first one to see how it works. And we'll try and raise the money um, to be able to pay you to do it. So that's what we did. We raised a sponsorship for them to be able to do it. And they, because they're young, they didn't charge a lot. So it worked out on both sides. It's 50 minutes long. And it's the story from my birth um, all the way through to when I won the gold medal and set the world record. Uh, it's 50 minutes long. That's as much as we could afford to do. But it's um, mostly me telling the story. We couldn't afford a narrator. Um, Drew, my first agent, he comes in to kind of give a bit of color commentary to back me up. Um, a reporter in New Zealand is on there a little bit. Most of it, though, is in my own words. I'm telling my own story on camera. And I had a great deal of footage um, that I'd saved of the races and, and so forth. So um, a lot of video and it's it's really it's inspirational because I've done it in such a way where it's not really just all about running. It's about enduring and overcoming and uh, just it's up on my website and people can go and download it. And once they download it on their devices, it's theirs forever. Fantastic. And you said it's it's about 50 minutes long. And I know, you know, in this day and age with so many viewing options, sometimes sometimes shorter is better for people. So um, I definitely, you know, ob obviously, even in the scope of this podcast, we can only touch upon so much. So for those who are listening, who are intrigued uh, and want to know more, I encourage you to go to uh, Anne's website, AnnaAudain.com. And I'll put that in the show notes for this episode as well. Uh, and check out this documentary. And I believe it's available for purchase and for rent if people are interested, right? Yes. And then it's yeah. it's nineteen ninety nine to purchase and it will get it's through Vimeo.com. So you just have to reg register on Vimeo.com, which is free. And then once you download it, you've got it forever. So you don't have to watch the whole thing at once. Okay. You can watch it in bits and pieces. Um, and then it's a weekly rental of nine ninety nine. So um but, you know, as I said, once you get it, it's yours and it's on your device. So yeah. that, that you may as well just easy. purchase it. Yeah, you may as well just purchase it. Yes. Um, all right. Well, before we go, and I asked that, I asked this of all my guests and it's always a loaded question, but hopefully you can take it on. You're you're not you're not averse to challenge. Do you have one parting piece of wisdom that you'd like to share with our listeners? Hill repeats. <laughs> That's the first time someone has said that. Please go on. Well, both my coaches believed in hill repeats and the doctors and my rehab folks um, said that that was the way to keep my feet strong. They also said, the doctors said, to run in the nearest thing possible to bare feet because that's how my feet would hit the ground correctly. So throughout my career, I was hills, hills, hills. Both coaches believed in it. 
And also I ran in, in racing flats my entire career. Um, but even now, I still go out three times a week and do hill repeats because that's how I keep my feet healthy. And if your feet aren't healthy, they're not hitting the ground right and the rest of your posture just goes to hell. And so um, that's that's to me has been the biggest uh, part of my training career, my entire running life. And as I said, still go out and do hill repeats three times a week. And I bet, you know, if I went out and ran hill repeats with you, you would probably smoke me. Let's let's be honest here. Well, you can do them in different ways, too. I actually do them slow. I find a steep hill that's about 100 meters long, and I really prioritize my knee lift so that I'm actually going up slow, lifting my knees high because that's where you're getting the power. Um, you can do them fast, and, and sometimes we did for a different part of our training regimen. But to be honest, to get the power, you you go slow. So you don't look at them as though, oh, Lord, I'm going to be out of breath and, and, and it's just going to be awful. It's not because if you do them, if you found a grassy hill that's 100 meters and it's quite steep and you just get up on your toes and you just go real slow, that's giving you so much power in your feet and your butt and your back. So you don't have to go out and run 10 times up a hill and be winded. That's that's not going to give you that strength. Interesting. I'm going to I'm going to make sure that my coach hears this and <laughs> and anybody else I run with uh because I feel like we always focus on the speed and I am not I'm not fast. I I at least not on hills, so I'm now feeling better about myself. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> nope. So, slow and slow and steady. That's, that's one. Right. That's one thing where you just say slow and steady. You don't have that's to right. go fast. Slow and steady wins the race. Tortoise and the hare. Yes, right. It's all about that. <laughs> so finally, uh, if someone wants to learn more about you, how can they do that? Well, the website I think is is um, pretty. It's got my bio and it's got some pictures. And of course, for heaven's sake, Google. Oh, that has everything. I mean, that has interviews and video. You just Google my name and there's a whole bunch of stuff of my life up on Google. You can't run and hide from that anymore. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and you know, the, the movie um, is, is pretty good. And uh, that's, that's pretty much it. All right. Well, I thank you, Anne, for being on the Season Athlete Podcast. I'm so glad that I got the chance to talk to you and really dig into your story today. And thank you for for doing what you've done to pave the way for women's professional running, being a worldwide inspiration, being a leader in your country of New Zealand, as well as around the world. So thank you for what you have given uh, in, the, in your decades in the sport. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right, seasoned athletes, here are a few top takeaways from Anne Audain. Number one, your limitations don't dictate your life or write your story. Anne couldn't walk properly for her entire childhood up to age 13. Running was likely not even something that could be considered. But the surgery she had when she was 13 changed everything. It was a fresh beginning for her and would set in motion a new path that would lead her to a life as a pioneer and champion runner. Number two, the discipline of training for a competitive sport at a high level can help you stay mobile, stay off medication, and increase your ability to rehab from injury and surgery into your advanced years. 
Anne talked of her time doing physical therapy and meeting people 10 to 15 years younger than her who were having trouble coming back from surgery. Her discipline allowed her to move faster through her experience in physical therapy than others who weren't as active and didn't have her discipline. Playing a sport can have benefits that last well beyond your time as an active participant in that sport. And number three, hill repeats are your friend. Hill repeats will keep your feet strong. Anne does hill repeats three times a week even though she no longer competes. To her, hill repeats have been the biggest part of her training career and her running life. Running friends, I hate to break it to you, but it's important. Always do your hill repeats. Thanks again to Anne Audain. Do you know someone who would make a great guest on this show? Or do you have a unique and inspirational story to share? Shoot us an email, seasonedathlete at gmail.com. Check out our entire library of episodes and get to know our distinguished seasoned athlete alumni at seasonedathlete.me. And if you live in the Los Angeles area and are feeling super inspired to train like a seasoned athlete, visit rutsm.com and learn about how to train with me to help bring out the seasoned athlete in you. Now go out there and embrace your extraordinary, my fellow seasoned athletes, because you so can.